welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. I am. Um, that's quite a big chunk of it. Because I thought, I can't really tell you where I'm at if I don't tell you why. Exactly. Because so, I've had an interesting journey, as you can see. I don't know if you... I find when you go to a new place, it takes you ages to make connections. And um, I, I, when I went to Malaysia, I never realised that, you know, this person I'm talking to is the daughter of that person, and suddenly you think, oh, yeah. you know, it just... Everything clicks. So do you remember Ben? Well, Ben is yeah. Dave's son. I don't know if you've made yeah. that connection. I didn't know if you had, but he yeah, he's my son. I do. And he's... Uh, you know, when, like... Andy and Sharon and whatever talk about the dance and drama group. Well, that is also part of Yes, I go right back to 1976, was it? Was it 77? David Watson, was it 78? 1978, I think. So, yeah, that's when I met all these crazy people like Andy and Sharon. And, well, Andy was... What was he? 18 or something at the time. And very in love. They weren't even married. None of us were married in those days. So. Um, it was an interesting time. I wasn't going to talk about that. But, no, I'm just trying to put you in contact. But I am part of that, yeah. I've been here <laughs> since 1978. So... Which is crazy because I joined lots of other churches for a while and every church I joined, God said, that's not the one. You know, this isn't it yet. And then eventually I came here and I didn't like it and I really thought I'd been conned by God because <laughs> it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't this, it wasn't what you see now. It was World War Three. It really was. There was us and there was them and they hated us and we didn't know why but the result is this so right come on now you're not supposed to see all those that's what you're supposed to see um, I'm not big on slides, so I was taught um, a long time ago to use very few slides. So you won't see much on there. That's just really just a reminder. I don't do fancy slides. I don't do big transitions. It's just I could do, but um, I was taught not to. So. Anyway, um, for what it's worth, I was born way back in 1953, which is like the dawn of creation, I think. But, um, and I became a Christian when I was nine. What's the next slide? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, there we go. So I got saved in 1962, which is, what, 50, 55 years ago. So I've known this stuff for a very long time, which in some ways is wonderful and in other ways is a real problem because you know it too well. 
because you've done it for 50 odd years. I know you can't imagine the idea of doing anything for 50 odd years, but trust me, you'll get there. Um, I went to a, a nice Baptist Sunday school. I lived on a council estate. We, we didn't have much money. Um, and these guys came to my school every Sunday and we had Sunday school and we went and I learned all about Jesus and the Bible. And then, as, then I uh, joined the church choir. I was one of those boys with the, uh, the funny colour, singing, and I did that for about 10 years and really loved it. Uh, but I also joined a group called the Crusaders and that's where I really learned about the Bible. They were very good at this. They would, um, every week we did a Bible study and that was a whole new idea for me. Um, at university, I decided I didn't need God, so I gave up. And for three years, I managed fairly well to live without God. Well, I thought I did until I had a huge breakdown, couldn't concentrate, failed my exams, ended up spending a lot of time in the medical centre, did some group therapy, took antidepressants and generally had a thoroughly horrible time and proved to myself that I couldn't live without God. What I didn't know was that there'd been two girls praying for me. Two girls I didn't particularly like, but they were praying for me and as a result of their prayers I met this guy who had basically a similar experience to mine and he'd met somebody and God had turned his life around and this guy who'd been a Christian about three months didn't know anything about Christianity was the guy that just brought me back God just used somebody who hadn't got a clue to point me back in the right direction which was quite amazing because he didn't know what he was doing I probably knew more than him but he got me back. So God will use anybody. It's just, um, yeah, where am I? I then met with this American group who I now think were a little bit extreme and a little bit serious. And do you know what I mean by a cult? A group of people that sort of very uh, they're very inclusive they're into themselves they believe what they believe they're right everybody else is wrong and I think they were a little bit of a cult but anyway they t really taught me to study the Bible really well and um, I spent probably three or four years with them uh, last year at university and then I, I lived with them, these guys for a couple of years so I learnt a lot, and they were very hot on Bible study, but also very hot on memorising the Bible. You had to have this little pouch, and you had all your verses in it, and you had to, 50 verses a day, you had to go through all your memory verses so you could quote scripture. The problem was, it wasn't in context. So you just knew what the verse said, you didn't know what the verse meant, because what the verse meant might not be what they said it said, because... It was just that little bit. 
and it was very competitive so everybody had bigger and bigger pouches with verses in them and people knew hundreds, people knew thousands and it was a real big deal but it didn't really mean a lot but I learned some scripture so that was good I probably learned about 300 verses so um and they taught me to do Bible study. They had some really good Bible studies. And the idea was you sat down, you read the whole book a couple of times, and then you took a chapter, and you basically just thought about it, prayed about it, and then went through each verse, asking the question, what does this mean? It's a good way to do Bible study. So I learned to do that. Um, And they were very hot on reading the Bible every day, so being very competitive, I found myself reading three chapters every day. Two chapters in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament. And if you read three chapters a day, you can read the whole Bible in four months. So I was reading the Bible three times a year, and this was great. And I kept on doing that for several years, and then I slowed down a bit. And probably for the next, I don't know, 30 years, I read the Bible every year. So it's very, very familiar. But again, I think it's too familiar. I know it too well because I've read it. I don't do this now, but I read it every year for about 30 years. And then God said, you like the old stuff too much. You like the battles. You like it when the ground opens up and people fall in, and that's not who I am. I want you to just read the New Testament. So for probably the last 10 years, I've only been reading the New Testament. So God says go back, and I think it's nearly time now to go back. Because I think I understand more. I'll talk about this, but I think I understand more about what the old's about. This is my idea anyway. You may, you are allowed to disagree with me, but this is my journey. Okay, so, say I've just been reading the New Testament for the last 10 years. More recently, I've been looking more at church history and doing a bit less Bible and a bit more other things, but we'll come to that. So, everything's going quite well until 1999 when I nearly died I had already nearly died in 1952 1962 and 1974 but 1999 was the big one 1999 is the one I really remember um, I got do you know what a tumour is when you like a cancer yeah I, I got a thing that was growing inside here and it was growing on the artery, the big blood pipe, if you like, um, which means it's very dangerous. <laughs> and nobody wanted to take it out because taking it out involved cutting into the big artery. And we eventually found a guy in Manchester who did that sort of thing and said, oh yes, I would like to do this. So I went off to the Royal Infirmary in Manchester um, back a little bit I'd, I'd, um, I'd been feeling a little bit unwell for about a year 
and I found that I was getting very tired when I walked and then gradually my legs were getting a little bit weak and I could walk for maybe a mile and then I had to sit down and then I could walk for maybe half a mile and then I had to sit down and then one day I, I used to be the PA guy in church I was the guy behind the desk I was always the techie guy I did the website I copied the CDs or the tapes as it was then I did all that stuff um, I was the guy hiding in the back very much and so I had a can of coke in my car and I went this was in the old church I went out from church crossed the road got the can of coke from the car walked back got through the gate and my legs gave way and I ended up sitting outside church unable to move um, it was actually Tony Edgerton that picked me up that was his very first week in church he is the last person to join this church to see me walk um, they took me home and I went to the hospital and the hospital said no you don't have a problem go home they said I was dehydrated despite the fact my legs weren't working so we, I went home and I found my wife who's a nurse and she talked to her friend the doctor who said this is ridiculous and sent me back to a different hospital and they found me a bed and within, so that was Tuesday, Saturday morning, I woke up and my legs didn't work at all. I knew that the process was complete, which was very difficult because I didn't know how to sit up. I didn't know how to turn over in bed. I couldn't do anything. Even though it was only the bottom half, I just didn't know how to do anything. So I just had to lie there and they got very annoyed and told me that I shouldn't be there and I was in the wrong place and it was all my fault and that was very helpful and then they went off and shouted at the other people in the hospital and anyway um, things don't always work perfectly so um, it then took them two weeks I had every test I had all sorts of scans, I went in all the different machines, they put nasty chemicals in me and then put me through the machines again, and nobody could find anything wrong, but I couldn't move my legs. And then eventually, they did a scan, and somebody who was a little bit more interested, I think, said, maybe there's something there on one of the pictures they took and when they looked they said yes there's a tumor here but it was so deep inside that they couldn't see it and then this one guy i think it was a lady found it so then it was um can we take photographs can we write about you this is wonderful we know all about you now we want to write all this up so when i had my operation you know you have an operation and you have to say yes i give you permission to do the operation I had to give extra permission for photographs so that the person could write about this thing I had. So that was a bit naughty, really. Anyway, so we found this guy who was quite happy to cut me open. 
and thought this was really fun. Professor Somebody, vascular, head of vascular surgery at MRI. I can't remember now. He was the big guy in 1999 in MRI. And it was, because my wife knew, she phoned up his secretary and she knew just how to hook him in. Now, I have something you might find interesting, because nobody at the other hospital, that was Hope, would touch me. All the surgeons said, no, too dangerous. We don't want to do this. So, so I go to... Um, the other thing was, yeah, just... This isn't really what I'm talking about, but just... The ward I was on in the hospital in Salford, the, the one where my doctor sent me, was full of people who had problems with their, with their brains. So we had people with, well, and their bodies, motor neuron disease. Do you know what that is? It's where you, basically your muscles stop working and eventually you can't even swallow. So there were people with motor neuron disease, there were people with brain tumours. And I'm in this ward and there are people in beds next to me and they're being told that they have these illnesses which are going to kill them. And I just had the privilege, it may not sound like it, but I saw it as a privilege to be able to sit there and just talk to these people. I didn't tell them about Jesus. I just got to know them, made friends with them, sort of suffered with them a bit. And then I went off to the other hospital, and this was people who were having things amputated might lose a foot or they'd lose a leg or something so again I'm with people that are having very serious things done I mean mine was very serious but again I got to know some people who were really in trouble and I got to spend some time and I think that that was good for me I hope it was good for them but. so I realised I have to have this big operation they tell me they're going to cut me open all the way down there and they're going to take everything out, which they did, and then they're going to remove this thing. And we didn't know if it was cancer, so I had already spoken to a guy from the cancer hospital, so there was a big possibility that this thing was going to come back, and it was all very nasty. It didn't, but... And I realised for the first time there was a good possibility I could die. So, nearly died in 1999. Um, I really realised that this could be it. Um, you don't cut into somebody's blood supply. And you don't have a good, you know, I think it was something like a 50-50. So, half I could die, half I could live. So, I really had to start thinking about this. <laughs> And God's been really good to me. It's like he was holding me in his arms and I felt really loved that God was just, say, just holding me. It was like one enormous hug for a couple of weeks. But I had to really think then, do I really believe this stuff? Because it's possible in two days' time I might be dead. Really possible. And what do I really believe? Do I really believe this stuff that I learned in 1962 is this real and until you've been there I don't think you really really know I discovered that I really believe this stuff so if you like my faith moved to a different level 
because now it really mattered because there's a good chance I'm going to be dead and I'm going to find out so how do I feel about that and I found that I did believe but I also realised it was okay to ask questions because now I really really believed it was safe to ask questions about what I believed does that make sense suddenly it's it's not just some little thing this is real I know it's real anyway but it's a different sort of real so God told me that I wouldn't feel him for two days so I had my operation um, six hours and lots of blood and and, uh, then lots of morphine and things and and I, he was right, I didn't feel him for two days, but then after two days, I could feel him again, and we're sort of back together. But he'd warned me, which I thought was really good, because I would have been really worried, where are you? And he'd said, no, no, you're going to miss me for two days, but it's going to be all right. And I don't know why people take heroin, because when I was on morphine, which is the same thing, it did horrible things to my head. I did not like it. I really did not like it. It made my brain do some very strange things, so don't recommend taking heroin. It's not good for you. It's, it just wasn't nice. Um, basically, I was in hospital for about, I think it was about six months. No, four months in all. So, big deal. Out in the wheelchair. Um, That's really just to say that from that point on I felt free to ask questions. So that's my journey. Um, the other nearly died. I nearly died before I was born. I had um, a really big illness in 1962 and in 1974 I got very depressed. We won't talk about that but I nearly died. Um, so that's just why they're on there as well. And God gave me a promise about 10 years ago that he would never let me be in that position again so I'm not expecting to nearly die again <laughs> next time it will be the real thing but I have those four it's like ooh <laughs> so that was a bit scary but we got there anyway so that's why I'm in this thing anyway um, the operation also did some damage so so uh, if I walk, it's a miracle. It's definitely a miracle because medically there is nothing. I have, I have scans that say this is not possible. So if you want to pray, that's fine by me. That would be really good. It would be scary, but it would be really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. Now, I'm an engineer. I didn't really say that. I'm a... Um, by training I'm an electronic engineer so my style is to ask questions I am one of these annoying people that wants to know every detail so when I did my training courses um, say I was learning how to fix disk drives I wanted to know how the disk drive worked which was very annoying for everybody else but that's me I just don't want to fix it. I want to know how it works. And I'm a bit the same with the Bible. I want to know really what, how does this work? What's going on? You know, I want all the details. Um, so 18 years ago, 
good point. 18 years ago, I started asking questions because now I could because I'd nearly died and I knew what I believed. So suddenly, I can ask God all those difficult questions. I should also say I did get angry with God. I did actually swear at God several times. And he said, that's okay, I understand. Life is hard, so. Um, when I read the Bible, it seemed different because now it was more real. And for a while, the book of Job, I don't know what you call it in German, Job, J-O-B, Job, yeah. That meant a lot to me. I, I understood, because he lost his life, he lost everything, and I, in effect, lost everything and had to get everything back. The only thing I kept was my job, basically. Everything else had to change. I had to move house, had to learn to live differently, had to learn to drive again, had to learn to work in a different environment, so everything different. So I really liked that guy for a while. Um, then two of my sons said they wanted to go to Bethel Church in Redding, California, Bill Johnson's church. Um, it was very expensive, <laughs> but very good. Um, and I would say that because I spent my money on them, God gave me some of the benefits as well. So I got a lot of what they got. Just, just works like that. It's crazy, but because I sent them, I learned so much. And the church got a lot. Uh, when, particularly when Ben came back and said, God's in a good mood. God is good. God, good, devil, bad. And everybody's going, oh, yeah. That, that, was really, that was really good. And one of the things my youngest son, Josh, brought back was a book on Bible study. Really thick book. Proper Bible study. Because they do do proper stuff. You know, it's, yes, it's all about miracles. And they see outrageous healings. They see cancer healed. I've been sat next to my... I've been sat next to Ben... And Ben and a friend praying in their healing rooms and I saw this woman come in and she had bone cancer and she could hardly walk and she was in pain and I watched them pray and I saw her running around the room I didn't get healed she got healed so they learnt a lot about all that stuff but they also did some proper serious Bible study and so I had this book and it's all about studying the words and looking at um, what the guy's really saying and everything. And I thought, this is really good. And then it said, but the important thing is culture. Because we assume that they thought the same way that we think, and they didn't. And that was a problem for me because I didn't understand how they were thinking. So I stopped reading the book <laughs> because I couldn't, I didn't know and I couldn't think any way I could find out. So for a couple of years I just didn't read the book and then I met Phil. And Phil said, I can help you with that. There is um, a course run by Yale University 
that they give away for free on Old Testament history. Then I found out later there's a New Testament one as well on iTunes U, which is the same thing for the New Testament. So I did that course and I learned a lot about what was going on in Old Testament times. I'm sure Phil must have talked about some of this. He talked about the Genesis, the two Genesis stories and the the two, I can never remember what they're called. He knows, he can always quote them, but I'd done some reading around that and looked at all that. And the thing that really got me was the fact that we don't think like they thought. And that we assume that we know what it means, and I don't think we do. I think this Bible study book was right, that we need to make what they were doing relevant to our culture. And I think a lot of Christians assume that if it says this, it means this. But culture changes things. So when it says women should wear hats in church, well, we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Because that was the culture. So if we don't do that, what other things don't fit? So this is where I'm coming from. And maybe a little bit more far out than most people I think I'm more along Phil's lines than other people certainly more than Irvin <laughs> I've just been talking to Irvin and he's much more straight down the line I'm a little bit more Phil way if you like you can blame Phil for all of this it's, but I'm enjoying it I have to say so I I did this Old Testament history thing it's really good um, I don't recommend it though unless you really want somebody to tell you some things that will make you think because it's very challenging because what they do is they take the Bible as a book and they criticise it as a book like they would take Shakespeare, Goethe, somebody like that and they will analyse the writing and they'll say this person didn't write this because there's two different people writing this so they do all that um, but I found it really helps because then I begin to understand for instance that um, when the Israelites come out of Egypt that's the Bronze Age that's not, you know, that's not even the Iron Age. So that, this is just after the Stone Age. So people, people are just learning to use metal. So this is a very long time ago. And I don't think we learn that, really. I think we think that it's a long time ago. But these are very, very primitive people living in a very different culture. So I have an example, of course. I have a slide. So I wanted to look at Mount Sinai. This is one of my favourite stories. I don't know why, but I've just become very attached to this story. Um, ooh, let's put some nasty characters in there. So I'm going to read it. Um, I'm not going to read too much, but I need to read a bit because you need to just remember the story. And I'm reading it in a different version because I know the other one too well, like I said. So, exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, 
they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. So there they are, camped round this mountain. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. Because everybody knows if you want to talk to God, you've got to go up high, because that's what you did. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So God's saying, I'm going to make you somebody very special if you just do what I say. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. I think that was a very silly thing for them to do because they had, well, they probably did intend to, but they couldn't so I think to promise to God that they would do what he wanted without really knowing what he wanted I think was a bit silly so Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord so yes Lord they'll do it then the Lord said to Moses I will come to you in a thick cloud Moses so the people themselves can hear me when I speak to you then they will always trust you so the people now are going to hear this Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Then the Lord told Moses, Go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. Be sure they're ready on the third day. From that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Mark off a boundary all around the mountain. Warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. No hand may touch the person or animal that crosses the boundary. Instead, stone them or shoot them with arrows. They must be put to death. So this is the classic culture of the time, that gods are dangerous and you don't go anywhere near gods and you have these special people called priests who usually get away with talking to the gods but they might get killed as well so it's all very God is angry God can be nasty God can be nice we don't know um, so the culture is very much so we're going to put fences up and we're going to keep away and we're just going to send the dude up there and if he dies well that's up to him but we're going to trust that he's going to be alright but not us but then God says however when the ram's horn sounds a long blast then the people may go up the mountain now this was completely radical you did not do that you did not go up and meet your God that's what the priests were for so God is giving them something totally different to anything they'd ever come across before in their culture nobody did this and God says when you hear the noise come so this if you like it, this is like 1500 years before Jesus comes God's saying you can come now 
And I honestly think if they had, that would have made such a difference. This, it's completely outrageous. Come up on the mountain. Can't do that. Nobody does that. See, I, always t I was always taught that this whole Sinai thing was about getting the law. So they go to the Sinai and God says, okay, here's how it's going to be. From now on, this is the law. It doesn't say that. It says, God says, come up. And when they didn't come up, then he gave them the law. Bit different. Yeah? So... Yeah, people believe that God's wrong and liable and could be angry. You had to sacrifice to them to keep them happy. You know, everybody knows that. Way to keep God happy, kill an animal. Or maybe a person. You know, remember... Um, um, Abraham and... Um, Isaac. My brain was saying Elisha then. Abraham and Isaac, you know... Abraham didn't think twice about that because that's what you did. That was normal. Take your son up and kill him. That will keep God happy. It wasn't quite God's idea, but you know God had a way around that. But so that was normal. You sacrificed, and the Israelites were part of that culture. Everybody around them killed animals to keep the gods happy. Maybe killed people to keep the gods happy. It was what you did. Um, and the priest was the person that did it. So the priest was the special person. You didn't talk to God, you let the priest do that because this was the scary stuff. And Moses was actually from the right tribe, so he was actually legally allowed to go and do that. He was a Levite, and they were the only people who were allowed to be priests. So Moses was sort of all right. I mean, he'd also the guy that led them out of Egypt, so... You know, it was a big, he was definitely the man. So everything looks normal. Scary God is talking to Moses. No one else is allowed near in case they die. Fences are up. Everybody's safe. Because everybody knew if you even looked on God, you died. Said so. Moses got up the mountain to talk to God. Who says, when you hear the ram's horn, you can go, everybody can go up the mountain. They had a new opportunity. They had an opportunity for a new way of relating to God. However, guess what happens? The ram's horn sounds. It says, "When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear." And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. They just didn't get it at all. It was just too far. And Moses answered, God has come this way to test you so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. I almost think, you know, Moses was almost sort of just saying something to, for the sake of saying something there. I think he was trying to keep them happy when he says, God is testing you to keep you from sinning. I don't think it would have been a sin if they went up the mountain because they said, yes, we will do what God says. And the horn sounded and they would have been fine. So I think Moses is just sort of, 
shooting his mouth off a little bit, as we say. So they blew that deal, basically. Now, by understanding their culture, you can see how radical this was for them. The law that was given after this, because they didn't get the law till after they said no, this sounds very harsh, and it was. I mean, you, you got killed for little things. But it was a, the thing is, it was a major improvement on the laws that everybody else had around them. Because we think, wow, that law, you know, you do this, we stone you. You know, that sounds terrible. But the fact is that the culture around them was property is more important than people. So the Babylonians or whoever they were around them, they all had laws that said, if you steal from me, you die. Um, if you kill somebody, I'll make you my slave, but you don't die. So property was more important. God took that and turned it around and said people are more important than property. So even this law that was given was very, very radical. It was nothing like what everybody else had. To us it sounds really bad, but to them it was a big leap forward. Because if God had come and said, it's okay, your sins are forgiven, they'd have all gone, yeah, right. They wouldn't have believed him. So it was a process, and this is the beginning of God changing the way they looked at him. It took a long time. So over the next two to four hundred years, you can see God starting to change the culture. Um, very, very slowly. There are little things in the Old Testament that look more like New Testament. They're just odd verses here and there. You'll suddenly think, that doesn't make sense. Why is that there? Because he's just changing their minds. Um, he institutes a system of judges. You know the book of Judges. We have all these people. And it works quite well when they have a good judge. But then they have a weak judge. And everybody goes back to worshipping the heathen gods. And doing what they did before. And then you get a strong judge and everybody obeys and everything goes right so you get people like um, Samson and everybody's fine and then he dies and everybody goes back and so it goes on till you get to Samuel and Samuel is the last judge because everybody else has a king so the culture is you have a king and Israel didn't have a king and they wanted to be the same as everybody else so Israel said, we want a king. So it says, this is, uh, hey, next slide, 1 Samuel 8. <laughs> I don't really know why I did these slides, except there are two pictures at the end that I really liked. So, as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. So this fabulous system that God has put together, the people are messing up. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. 
Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So God gave them what they wanted, because that's what everybody else has. But he also warned them it wasn't going to work. And within 120 years, there were two kingdoms, not one. There were two kings, not one. And then, I think I'm right in saying it was the northern kingdom disappeared. That's right, isn't it? So the northern kingdom gets invaded, that disappears. So it's all going horribly wrong. There's now this tiny little southern kingdom. And of course, not long after that, that gets invaded and they all got carried off to Babylon. So it wasn't a good plan. But the culture of the time was, we need a king. We want a king. It wasn't God's idea. God said, I'm your king. But that's how it was. So you you can see God constantly pushing them towards his loving character constantly he's trying to get them to live in a different way to the way the people around them live but they are fighting back they want to go back they like having multiple gods somehow they quite like angry god happy god because that's comfortable because that's what everybody else has Um, so in the old testament it's always God who's said to bring the disease. It's God who smites them down. It's God who causes the ground to open up. It's God who kills them when they do something wrong. Um, there is a... Um, you won't find the devil mentioned in the Old Testament, but you will find a character called the Accuser of the Brethren. And there is quite a lot of evidence that that was considered to be a part of God that God did the accusing so when in Job it says that the accuser of the brethren went to God that would be God talking to himself which is a strange idea and the devil only appears as the devil in the New Testament so they had changed from God does everything good and bad to maybe God does the good stuff and there's somebody else that does the bad stuff but that took them 1500 years well probably a lot more but over that 1500 years they changed the way they looked at things so I begin to see the Old Testament not as God doing bad stuff but as people thinking God did bad stuff and if that's what they think that's what they're going to write why would I think God does bad stuff and write that God does good stuff doesn't make sense now I know we have um The, the um, I forgot is it I know it's 316 I can't remember which but all scripture is inspired by God is it what 2 Peter Timothy yeah 2 Timothy isn't it 2 Timothy 316 all scripture is inspired by God so a lot of people believe that means God wrote every word but I can't see that because in the Old Testament God is killing people 
and in the New Testament God isn't killing people so did God change his mind or is it that in the Old Testament people thought God was killing people therefore that's what they wrote and in the New Testament they didn't so they wrote something different leave that one with you <laughs> I would say this is a journey I'm not So the other thing is the Old Testament points to Jesus all the time. You know, you've got, you've got all the stuff in Isaiah, but you've got other things as well. It talks about Messiah coming all the time. It's saying, you know, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue you. It says the sacrifice I, I desire is not dead animals. It's the way you behave. It's love. So it's, it's different. And these things are in there, but they're just in there a little bit, like I said. But even by the time of Jesus, sacrifice was still what you did. The the Jews did it, everybody did it, the Romans did it. The Romans sacrificed to their gods, different gods, same idea. Um, So everybody sacrificed. So um, I couldn't find the answer to this, but did Jesus sacrifice animals at the temple? There's a question for you. There's no evidence he did, but if he didn't, how could he turn up at the temple and say, it's okay, I don't need to sacrifice because I'm perfect. I'm not a sinner. You guys are all sinners. I'm not. So I can go in the temple and I don't need to sacrifice. If he'd done that, there'd have been a riot. So I think you can say he probably did it because that's what you did. So that was the culture sacrifice Um, yeah now many people believe that he became a sacrifice to appease God's anger about our sin right you hear that all the time I don't buy that (sighs) I don't know what you've heard here so far so I'm, I'm just telling you where I'm at but I don't buy that I don't buy angry God killing Jesus to make everything all right I just don't buy that one it fits the culture of the time but not my culture that God is love I don't see angry God I see God is love and that is my big do you know what I mean by an obsession that's the thing that's the most important thing to me that God is love and I don't see God doing anything that isn't love So I'm still working through why Jesus had to die. (laughs) This is one of my questions. Why did you die, God? Um, I know his death set us free from the power of sin. I don't dispute that. It's called atonement. That's the technical word. But I'm still working out how. So I thought I'll ask Google. I put in the word atonement just to see what came out. And I found a very interesting thing on a BBC website, which makes me feel much better. It says, So, it is a basic idea in Christian theology that God and mankind need to be reconciled. However, what is more hotly debated is how the death of Jesus achieved this reconciliation. Ooh. There is no single doctrine of atonement in the New Testament. That's bonkers. That's mad. 
why would God not make it clear how it works? It says, in fact, perhaps more surprisingly, there's no official church definition either. So basically, Christians don't agree. That's crazy. It's one of the fundamental things that we have. And it's not clear in the Bible. And Christians don't agree. How strange is that? It's just mad. So did God leave it deliberately vague? Because the more I look at the Bible, the more I think it doesn't say lots of things that it could say. It just leaves things very sort of open and you can ask questions. Unless you're a, an American conservative evangelical, in which case you know exactly what the Bible says. And it must say it in the King James Version. Um, and you believe absolutely every single word it says. But I'm not a, an American conservative evangelical. So. so I'm actually moving a long way away from that. They are the people I met when I was a student who taught me how to study the Bible, but I'm not sure I agree with them now. Um, yeah. I'll leave a bit out. So the Romans, when they came, because remember, in the time of Jesus, the Romans had come in and this was the latest people to invade Israel and the Romans were a pretty, pretty nasty bunch. They'd come in and they'd just make everybody do things their way and if you didn't like it, they'd kill you. Um, quite often they'd kill you very slowly in a very nasty way because um, they were like that. But they also brought their education system and much of what the Romans taught was based on the philosophy of Plato. So... Um, although the New Testament is mostly Hebrew quite quickly the teachings of Plato got mixed in with this because the Romans were probably the most influential people around the Greeks weren't so powerful then but their culture was very mixed in with Roman culture so people when you went to school you learnt Plato you learnt what Plato said so you get to people like St. Augustine. Everybody quotes St. Augustine. St. Augustine is the ultimate expert on everything sort of Christian. And most of what he taught was based on Plato. And a lot of it you won't find in the Bible. But we think it's in the Bible. Because St. Augustine said it was right. So we have... So we now have Hebrew culture. Because the Israelites, Hebrews, we have Greek philosophy coming in and then we have our own culture. So when we look at the Bible now, there's bits of us, bits of Plato and the Hebrew stuff and it's all very confusing and my mind just wants to go, stop, help, this is too much. But there are three cultures in there that we need to pick our way through. So this is why I'm very hot on culture. I think I had a slide for that. Hey, that was the quote. Just to prove it really is on the BBC website. And there's the three cultures. So Hebrew culture, Greek culture, and modern culture. So everything you think you know 
is a combination of those and it may or may not be what the Bible says because a lot of this stuff isn't actually in the Bible when you start to look it's surprising um, so I'm going to say again that there is much in the Bible that's vague and contradictory God just doesn't nail it down he really doesn't it's it's not written in our language it's written in several different languages we don't even have the originals why don't we have the originals you know if God really meant the Ten Commandments to be that important why don't we have those stone tablets we don't have a single document from the New Testament or the Old Testament we have scrolls from around the time but we don't have any of the originals if it really matters that much to God why don't we have them just asking the question I think God sees scripture as less important than we do <coughs> you can throw me out now okay I don't think God's too bothered like we are I think God's interested in relationship you know God is love God's about relationship yeah we've got scripture and scripture is really good and scripture helps us and it teaches us but I think it's the relationship that matters and I think God is much less hung up about scripture than we are I'm going to keep saying that that's where I'm at with it um, so what about the angry God of the Old Testament that is the Roman God Janus Janus is the absolute two-faced God. The Romans had one of their gods was this guy called Janus. He has a happy face and an angry face. And you never knew when you talked to Janus which one you were going to see. And the Old Testament is very much like that. Am I going to encounter happy God? Am I going to encounter angry God? So I just thought you'd like to see a picture of him. So what I see in the Old Testament is people writing their understanding of what was going on if something bad happened it was God's fault God was the bringer of good and bad and many people still believe this if you ask people why did your child die well God did it why did God take away my child why did God do that hopefully you've learnt here that we don't see it that way I hope you've learnt that we don't see God doing bad stuff but that was their culture why would the ancient Israelites write something completely alien to their culture why would they say God only does good stuff when they honestly believed that God did bad stuff so I think the Old Testament reflects where they were at and I think that makes perfect sense so for the record I do not believe God was responsible for all the bad things that happened to them or for all the bad things that have happened to me. Quite hard, you know? Um, for me, God is love supersedes everything else. If my theology doesn't portray him as love, it's a bad theology. It just is. I'm sorry, but God is love is the most important thing to me. I'm not going to let anything else be more important than that. So, I'm still on the journey. I'm loving it. And I think it's going to take me the rest of my life. 
but I'm retired now so I've got time just to I'm lucky I've got time to just enjoy it so I started off with that picture that's a very little me on a very big journey with a very big Bible and a very big God and I just thought that summed up where I started from but where I am now it's all a lot closer it's a lot more manageable that's me on the journey now I've come a long way and that's it pictures. <laughs> so from there to there. God used to be. In fact, I used to go to these meetings. We had times with Toronto for a while. I don't know if you heard about what went on in Toronto in the 1990s, but we used to go to these meetings. And the presence of God was so strong, it was like, I'm struggling to stand up here. It was incredible. I used to hide under the chair because I was frightened. I loved it, but I couldn't. I had to have my head down. I literally used to crawl under the chair and hide from God because it was big God, little me. Now, now I can't do that. I could climb out the chair, but basically I can't do that now, and I've had to learn to go, this is good. So that is very much my journey. Got any questions? Sorry, I talked for a very long time. That's didn't great. take that long it yesterday. Didn't <laughs> That's me. Bit of a different story, maybe, but everybody comes to different routes. I love where we're at now. It's taken us, what, 40 years as a church to get here. We've done it the long way. We were like the children in the wilderness. We, you know, you're very lucky you can walk into this. It's done. We did it the hard way. Maybe you think we're mad. Maybe you don't like this. I don't know. <laughs> we like it. And we're still moving as well. That's the thing. Um, we don't think like we thought two years Thank you for listening to the Destiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.